Hey everybody, welcome to an uh, episode 108. How did that happen? Dan Schinder here with Steven Schinder. And our guest that we are so honored to have with us, David Cousins from the Strobs, and, uh, 108, and they've been around like 108 years, right, David? I feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're really happy you made time to join us, especially on a Saturday. So much to talk about. Um, I'm in Globe, Arizona, 100 miles east of Phoenix. David is in the UK and Stevens in Downey, the Los Angeles area. Chime in, folks. Tell yeah. us where you're watching from. Uh, let us know if you have questions for David. We'll relay those. And Stephen, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, so, you know, Straub's has had such a huge history. And going through the Straub's discography, it really feels like the band's sound was able to evolve so that it could adapt even into the 21st century. What would you say the key was to all of this, Dave? Yeah, was it real uh, conscious? I, uh, I can tell no, it was never conscious. Nothing has ever been thought about in terms of the way in which the band has developed. I'll tell you exactly what it, the consistency of it is, is the songs. It's the songs that carry the whole band through. It doesn't matter who's playing them. It's the songs that are the consistent sound of the straws. Awesome. Yeah, I, being around for so long, the question I'm going to ask, I know there's so many obvious answers, and if you use one of those, that's fine too, but whether it's regarding to, uh, staging or how one tours or studio gear, the recording process, money, downloads, the digital age, what are a couple of the biggest changes in the music business that you have found most challenging to adapt to, but yet, of course, you've overcome, or you guys wouldn't have had so much success for so many years. But what are a couple of the biggest uh, things that were most challenging to adapt to? Well, other than going back right to the very early days of recorded sound on cylinders, <laughs> we've actually <laughs> been through the whole lot. The wax. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know, but we've near enough. And actually, my dad had a collection of them, which I threw away when I was a kid. I thought, oh, what, what are these things? But anyway, that's not the point. Is that we've been through the lot. Our first records came out on vinyl, on you know, on forty fives. We were lucky that with that we didn't actually have seventy eights, but they came out on forty fives, and we'd been through vinyl, we've been through CDs. Now we're into the into downloading and streaming, and we've seen the whole thing evolving in the whole of our recorded career. And it's been, sometimes it's been exciting, sometimes it's been very frustrating. And it's a curious mix of the two at the moment. It's, it's exciting to put a new record out, but it's frustrating that people don't do it in the same way they used to going into a record shop. We've seen the whole total demise of the record shops. Tower Records, I used to love going into yeah. it. Shops like that were just a, a dream come true, but it, they don't exist anymore. Uh, yes, there are a few HMV stores in the UK, but by and large, the record shops are non-existent. They're like and a so, novelty uh, now. Yeah, but I used to go and buy a, a, a order a 78 record of Lead Belly and uh, um, cycle to the record shop and bring it back on my bike. It was about uh, the Backwater Blues I ordered on 78, and yeah. it got cracked on the way home, and I was broken-hearted. And, but I still played it, and it went, got the bag, water, blue, So I still played that thing over and over and over again. Uh, but it, it is frustrating in a way, but it's still exciting putting a new album out. 
Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things in regard to that change over the years is when vinyl basically went away for a long time, because it was still around when we had eight tracks and we had cassettes, but when vinyl kind of went away and was replaced with the CD, it really changed the, no pun intended, the landscape of the artwork and liner notes of album covers. And I, I'm very tactile when it comes to that. And I love the bigger canvas, if you will, that albums have. And you've got yours in vinyl, your own record. I, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, it's and an, it's such a beautiful it's a cover. It's thing to be able to pick up and, and hold. Uh, but I tell you what, I, I, when CDs came in, that it was the end of planning music because the, one of the great skills, I believe, is planning this running order of a vinyl album. And people don't realise how vinyl albums um, are, are sound, where the sound comes from for a start, right. actually in the industry. And also, they, they don't think about the key changes or the tempo of the songs. They just sort of pick, put the record on and listen to it. Now, when I make a record, you're bound, first of all, by 20 minutes aside. That is the best, best length for a side of, of a vinyl album. So that's why our album is always planned to the vinyl and to 20 minutes aside. Now, what people don't realise is that the, temp the, the, um, the needle is going up and down and from side to side. The treble... It comes from the needle going up and down, and the bass comes from the needle swinging from side to side. Mm -hmm. Now, the closer you get into the grooves in the center of an album, the grooves can become closer together, and therefore you can't get as much bass on a track in the middle of the album. Right. And therefore, to take all of that into consideration as to what should be the tracks in towards the center of the album, so that when you turn the album over, you've got more bass coming on for your very first song for the next song for the second side so all of that is taken into consideration which people don't realize when you plan now, the order of the songs yeah now when cds came in people said we've been cheated we've only got 40 minutes on on a cd and they can put 75 minutes on a cd well people started putting 75 minutes on a cd but frankly, they should have stuck to 40 because it's very easy, to not easy to make a 40-minute album, but with a 40-minute album, you can make a really powerful statement. But when you add, start adding all the bonus tracks and everything else towards the end of a CD, it waters down the value of the music. Yes, me. I agree. There should be a separate release, in my opinion. I don't know if Steve agrees, but the other thing you lose... It, it, I don't know if you lose it, but it's different that on vinyl, literally, other than sonically, like you just talked about, David, the fact that side one has a personality unto itself and side two has its own personality exactly. as opposed to just a continuous play, which exactly. I wonder how many things have come out only on CD first that would have been in a different order if it was a side one, side two sort of format I, I, I have no idea but, but then people who go on and make a, a a 70 minute album they wouldn't as i say they would they yes they can, could cram it a yeah. big chunk of it onto the vinyl album but it wouldn't sound very good right but i, I entirely agree with you uh, and what, what we have done is with the cd it does have two different tracks on the cd the two bone not they're not bonus tracks they are part of the album but in a funny way, 
listening to our new album, The Magic of It All, is that it sounds like two different records. When you play the vinyl album, it finishes with a very, on a very melancholy track called Wiser Now, and it, it leaves the audience going, oh, it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very sad reflective song. It's not sad, it's a reflective song. Mm -hmm. but when on the CD version, after that, comes a very lively song called The Lady of the Night, which is very chirpy and cheerful, and the whole CD goes out on a very feeling very good and very lively because it's then got a Christmas song on the on the very end of it, and so that there you're, it's like listening to two seriously like listening to two different albums. That's interesting. One goes out with a melancholy feel. The other one goes out with a very hopeful feel. Interesting, and, and I do have one more question about that format, and that is when you personally listen to the cd version versus the vinyl version how sonically different are they or did you consciously spend a lot of time to master it and mix it in a way where the warmth of the analog of the vinyl wasn't too far different from what we get with digital on a cd or do they sound very different uh they sound very different i didn't get involved in that blue weaver our producer ah. who was with is with the band uh he uh, is in charge of all that sort of thing. Okay. And he mas mastered it differently for the vinyl album. In fact, you have to cut down the various the sonic principles, levels of, of the, the master tape. Mm -hmm. And you have to do the audio engineers, because if the tape's too hot with level, then it, it, the vinyl won't cut properly. If, if the bass is too heavy, that needle swings across and clips into the next track. I've seen mm -hmm. that watched it um, when I've been to mastering sessions when they've actually cut the album they explain to you how that oh that's bouncing onto that track so we can't do that we'll have to reduce the bass there and cut it back uh, but then he it's so it's they are mastered in two different variant variants they're very different interesting thanks Steve yeah uh, so the game into the new album uh just going a bit back for context for all this, um, the Straub's album's Grave New World and Bursting at the Seams back in the early 70s were huge. And it makes sense that certain songs from those albums could resonate with people in South Africa resisting against resettlement at the time. We understand that this is a reason for the upcoming documentary, which has the same title as the album, The Magic of It All. So this might sound like a bit of a silly question, but which idea came first, the documentary or the album? What was the order of events there? It, 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 what came first was the fact that my partner's son lives in South Africa. Uh, so she said, I, I want to go and see Richard and his family. <laughs> Pardon me. They live in what was first called Port Elizabeth, but now it's called Kiberki. And she said, I want to go. Do you want to come with me? And I said, sure, yeah, I will go over. But I said, it's very expensive to go. I wonder if I can get some shows to help pay for the airfare. So I called up a DJ that I've been in touch with and said, can you fix me in with some shows? And within a week, he came back with four shows. Wow. I had no idea, but we only had six weeks to go before we were due to fly. So it was very short notice for these venues to put me on as a solo show. 
Then he came back and said, I've got South Africa's best bass player would like to play with you. Would do you feel, is that all right? So I did a list of the songs I intended to do, sent them over, and I got there and Skulk Zubez is his name. And he'd learned all of the songs, he knew every song. And I'm, we'd spent an hour and a half going through them on the first show and off we went. And the four shows were very successful. The last show, I was very surprised, we drew 400 people in Stellenbosch, which is just an hour outside Cape Town. Mm. I talked to a lot of people after the show and they said, you have no idea how popular Straubs were in the in the 1970s. Oh, wow. Uh, people, people identified with you because of apartheid and the anti movement, particularly the album Great New World, and bursting at the seams, part of the union became the rally, one of the rallying songs because there was a union. I can't remember what it was called now. The union, the anti-apartheid union, as mm -hmm. they called it. Oh, that, that's a bad. That's a bad. Uh, it wasn't that, but isn't it's it's in that line. Yeah. And, and so that song became hugely popular. Uh, but I hadn't. Uh, we knew that we'd sold records because A and M Records used to say you're selling a lot of records in South Africa. But that was all we ever heard. Oh wow! Could, so you didn't never, know all those years. We could never go to South Africa because UK musicians were banned from get, traveling there to play. Uh, so we couldn't go. So uh, when I went over there, they, they they were very excited about it. And the documentary maker came up and said, look, I want to make a documentary about the history of the band and its its influence on music around the world. Uh, not that we've been a massive band in, in terms of massive record sales like Michael Jackson or you know the Bee Gees or the, all of these acts. We were in a different league to that. But again, I think that's because of the nature of the songs as, as well. But anyway, he said, I would like to make a, an, an album, a, a documentary about the influence a band has had. And how would you feel about recording in South Africa with South African musicians? And I said, well, sounds very, very exciting. And so then Skolk Joubert came back and said, look, I've got the best guitar player and the best drummer in South Africa, uh, all ready to go. Are you ready to go? And I said, well, hang on, how much is this going to cost? Because I've got a budget to make an album. And so he said, oh, well, well, we, we'll, we'll have to find some sponsors for it. I said, I'll tell you what. And, it, and this may be very honest. I said, I'll put £5,000 down to pay for the studio, to help pay for the studio time and the musicians. And he said, well, I'll go and match that. And he went out and found sponsors over there to match that money. And so that was how it came about. Oh, wow. It was all done in that way. I then called up Blue Weep and said, how do you fancy going to South Africa? He'd been there before. He said, it's a wonderful idea. I love the idea. I called up John Ford and said, do you fancy it? He looked it up on the airlines and found out it was an 18-hour journey. And he said, I'm not sure I can make an 18-hour journey at the moment. Uh, so he said, but I'll certainly contribute. I'd love to join in the project. And so then I had three people joining in with it and, and a studio to make the album in with South African musicians and ancillary musicians who came to, in towards the end, the singers and the sax player. Byron Abrahams, oh my gosh. But anyway, in came these other musicians 
And it, it, it was the feeling and atmosphere in the studio was just electric. And it was a wonderful, wonderful, um, uplifting experience. Wow. Could you have ever imagined that back in the day when you were putting such influential material together that really affected that region of the world? Did you ever imagine that so many decades forward, you'd find out how popular you were and then get to play there? No. <laughs> Never, <laughs> it, 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 it's still difficult to comprehend. It interesting. Really is. It, it, but the interesting thing was that the studio is in the, the Academy of Sound Engineering in Cape Town. And it is a working college. So oh. at the time, during the day, with in the, the students on the course who were there on the course, the engineering course, sound engineering, engineering course, were sitting in the studio watching us record and also helping out as part of their, their learning schedule how to rig up a mic for live recording, how to rig up a drum kit, how to rig up the guitar, where to put the guitar amp so it doesn't spill into the studio, put it in a corridor outside. They were learning all this. And at the same time, when we had a break at lunchtime, we'd all go out and have lunch together. Not lunch together, we'd send out for McDonald's and, and fries. But we'd all sit around together and they'd tell us what music they were listening to and they were asking questions and we were asking questions of them. So it was a lovely learning process that was going on at the same time. And to make it better, all, all of this was being filmed for the documentary. That's great. Every, everything that we put down on the, on, in the studio with me strumming the guitar, making mistakes, going back and saying, can we do that again? Can we change this? Can we, how about if we do that? All of that is footage for the documentary. When does this come out, David? Uh, it, well, the next step of it is that we're doing a big festival in two weeks, three weeks' time, uh, the Cropperty Festival in England, which there'll be 25,000 people there. And the three South African musicians are flying over for it to draw and come on stage with me. And it's straw past and present. All of that is being filmed for the documentary as well. Wow, that's great. And, and, we're, and we're filming and recording the whole show. And uh, that will then all be put together into the footage of the documentary, which we hope to get out towards the end of the year. That's great. We're very excited about that. We love documentaries, both of us. Another yeah. thing. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Oh, I was just going to add that doc documentaries about bands, you know, it's very easy to make it solely about the history of the band. And those are great. In fact, one of those, uh, the Yes Years documentary was very much my gateway into becoming a fan of them. But to have a documentary like this on Forrest Straubs where it has a focus on the influence on that region and you also get to put in bits of recording the album and the upcoming festival gig, it's, yeah. uh, it's just such a neat, package and very really well rounded encapsulates it very uh, well I, it, I i think it's going to be a, a lo lovely thing to watch it'll probably be quite emotional i should think uh because it's uh it's going to be my last show and i'll, I'll explain why is that i have got a condition i was diagnosed in january uh, with a condition called mds m for mother d for dog s for sugar is how i say it and it, it is a form of blood cancer and it's it's incurable, 
Um, and it means that my immune system is very severely uh, diminished. It means that I can't go out to mixing crowded spaces in case I pick up an infection. Because if I pick up an infection, I have to go straight to hospital. Mm. And so it's a very difficult thing to live with. Uh, the whole thing has got to be managed very carefully. The performance on stage, I've already advised, I advised the organisers of the festival that I cannot go in after go to a meet and greet after the show. There's no way I can do that because I might just somebody might sneeze in my face and they'll end up in hospital. And so that's not feasible. Yeah. So they understand all of that. I've had to go out and buy my own microphone so that I don't pick up infection from somebody who's been using it before me. Yeah. These things have had to be taken into account. And I talked to my consultant about it, medical consultant, before taking the decision, can I do this festival? He said, it's in the open air, but for heaven's sake, he said, just do not get into crowded spaces. With, yeah. with, so he said, please beware of that. So he said, but I want you to live a normal life. And so it's not as though I'm crying in my soup and saying, oh, God, that's the end of it all. No, he said, I want you to lead a normal life. He said, if you go to the pub, he said, don't go on a Saturday night when it's rammed. He said, go on Saturday lunchtime and sit in the garden and have a, have a drink, have a beer or something like that. He said, that's, that's fine. He said, if you go to a restaurant, don't go on a Friday night when it's absolutely packed out. Right. Go, go at lunchtime and have a, have a nice meal. He said, but just be very careful. And so that's how I have to live my life now. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, we will talk about the new album in a moment. I have another historically related question, and that is that over the years, you've worked with three Wakemans, Wakemen, Wakemans, Rick, Oliver. I call them the white men. There you go. Rick, Oliver, and Adam. What yes. were some of the differences, if any, between working with them? And were they always telling on each other <laughs> in the later years with the younger gents? No, no, no they don't. They don't. They, they, they're all good friends, if you know what I mean. You know, yeah. dad, dad loves his kids. And they, they love him. Uh, and Adam was doing a show with his dad at Wigmore Hall in central London on Friday night. So they, they get together. And I won't spoil it, but Adam's going to be featuring with us uh, sometime soon. Oh, nice. But, but, uh, uh, so we, we're all in contact with one another. Uh, but Adam, uh, Oliver was the eldest son, and he plays sounds more like his dad playing. Uh, he's as fast as his dad. And he's the one who left us just like his bloody father left us to join Yes. <laughs> left us to join Yes. So I've got that as, a, as another unique point. That's funny. Uh, two, two of the white men left us to join Yes. Adam actually went and uh, was going to join Yes. And he went and rehearsed with them. And then the Russian keyboard player came back. And so he didn't actually get to play with Yes. Ah. Although he learned up the songs. But that's a little bit of a secret you'll have to ask him about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because of the visa problems uh, Igor was yeah. having. I remember reading about that, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, they're, they're all... Uh, Adam is the practical joker. Oh, yeah. Practical joker. You know, every time you touch his hand, you wonder what's going to go off in your hand. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's never vindictive. It's always hilariously funny. 
Uh, Rick is Rick. He's, he's a great raconteur. He's a wonderful player. I, I always tell Rick, your, your piano playing better than your synthesizer playing. He says, no, it's not. And he's good. So well, <laughs> I, I know how to wind him up, but I don't wind him up. Uh, and Oliver is, is a wonderful, wonderful player. And he played with us and made a lovely album. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was just great fun to do. But he was he, he, he had exactly the same, it, not, not intentional, the same mannerisms, mannerisms in the studio as his dad. Oh, wow. He had to roll his sleeves up, clear the studio, clear the air, shake his shoulders way to limber up. Okay, play the track. Bang! And then, then he was off. But nice. it was exactly the same mannerisms. It was uncanny. That's but interesting. All lovely people. And I, as I say, I'm very proud to be the fact that I'm the only person, the only band leader ever to have had all three Wakemen in the band. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, we've had Oliver on the show a couple times. Very delightful. We're looking to have Adam and Rick as well. But that's great that you got to work with all three of them. Oh, what, yeah. a, what a neat uh, point of trivia. Yeah, and you and Rick also worked on the Hummingbird album uh, oh, yeah. about 20 years or so um, ago. It's such a beautiful album. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that album was like, the process of making it? Uh, well, uh, Rick, uh, I, I moved from Devon in the West Country uh, up to, to Chiswick in West London. And quite out of the blue, Rick... I found was living about five miles from me. Mm. So we went out to lunch, and who should turn up at Pete Townsend? Who we had Rick and I sitting there for lunch, and Pete Townsend walked in. I really, you know, it was a very strange thing. And uh, Rick said, "I said, yeah, he said, I've got to move. He said, I've got nowhere to live at the moment. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for somewhere to live." Um, my wife at the time was a, an estate agent or a, a realtor, whatever you call it in, in mm -hmm. America. Yeah. Uh, so I said, well, uh, she'll find you a house. So she went out and find a house, and I said, I'll tell you what, uh, we'll pay the first three months rent if you'll agree to do a, an album with me. <laughs> and that was the deal. <laughs> oh, wow, what a sweet deal. Nice. Yeah. So, so he said, oh, thanks ever so much. So that was the deal. So we'll pay your first three months rent, and if if you'll agree to come, we'll make an album together. That's and great. It, the album was a lovely thing to make. It was such a, a joy. Yeah, we've both listened to it. It's beautiful. That's great. Yeah, and going back to Straub's, uh, John Ford and Blue Weaver were, of course, members of the band for those albums, Grave New World and Bercy at the Seams. Um, Ford had previously come back for more Straub's work, uh, including the previous album, Settlement. But is the magic of it all the first time you two and Blue Weaver have worked together since that era in the 70s, at least in a Straub's capacity? What was it like no. having the three of you together for this? No, no. We, we, we all got together uh, for our 50th anniversary, which we had in, uh, in Lakewood, New Jersey. Okay. Which we did. It, it, it now seems to be a sort of secret venue, a secret show. We had the thirty-two piece orchestra conducted by Tony Visconti. We had the United Nations singers singing with us. Oh wow! Which is quite. It was quite an event. It was a whole weekend, 
John Ford came along and played. Blue came along and played. Um, I had four keyboard players on stage for the last set. Wow. I hope they weren't all on the same side of the stage or it would have tilted just from their egos, right? They, 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 were, all on the, they were all on the same side of the stage. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, there was Dave Bainbridge who played more, most recently on keyboards with us. Uh, well, but, but, uh, there was Blue Weaver, there was John Hawkin and Larry Fast. Nice. That must have been quite a show. Is that on DVD anywhere? No. Uh, it, unfortunately, uh, the guitar player was so loud that he obliterated an awful lot of it, so it's having to be repaired. Mm. Mm. Interesting bit of history. Didn't know about that. Oh, well, it, 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 but, you know, Blue came back and played with us in the 1980s. Uh, John Ford came over and did shows with us. It's... It, it, I hate to say it, but once a straw, you're always a straw. There you go. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you say uh, makes the magic of it all different from previous albums in addition to what we've already talked about? <laughs> Sorry. I, I think it's the atmosphere and uh, there, there's a, a very, it, Cape Town's a very lively place. And we were, we were driven in, we got there at, uh, well, ten, we start working about 10.30 and we went on till seven every night for 14 consecutive days. It was hard work, I don't mind telling you, but very enjoyable. But when we did drive around, driving in or driving out, the whole place has got a lively, lively buzz about it. Mm. It's very friendly uh, in that particular part of, the, of where we were. Uh, it was right up above the castle, looking out up down on the castle. It's a very lively area. And we went up Long Street, down the loop, as, as they call it. And there's music pouring out of every bar you go into. And the sound of South Africa is the Gumar rhythm, which is the, the Gumar Mango Groove is, was the band that one of the... the, the the guitar player Morris played in, and so I refer to that in the song "All Along the Bay" on the album. And it, but just listening to it, the atmosphere is so lively and so warm that we got a very warm live sound in the studio. And Blue, we were producing the album, decided to leave that feel on the album, not to overproduce it. You can kill albums off by putting too many overdubs on it, making it too busy, shoving too many uh, orchestra, pseudo orchestras on, you know, on com computerized orchestras and so on. He decided to leave it with a very raw live sound. So it was perfectly obvious that we were in the studio recording it live. The count-ins are all on there. And if there's a, a slight mistake, it's left in. And it, I think it gives that lovely feeling, a natural feeling to the album. And yeah. that's, that, that's the difference of it. The album before its settlement was made in the COVID lockdown and not one of us was in contact physically with oh, each wow. other at all. In no way. Everything was put, everybody did their little bits on the computer, sent it to Blue Weaver in Germany, who chopped it all up and mixed it together. It was a very, very difficult album to make. It turned out all right, but it, it didn't have the lovely live feel that this record's got. 
How was the experience of your new album? And we're going to show a couple of the images there. Great photo, by the way. Is that you on the bike? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not no. still riding, David? <laughs> no, um, I did have a motorbike in my youth, uh, but I wouldn't dare get on one now. I've still got a license to, to ride a motorbike, but I wouldn't dare get on one. Yeah, I'm the same way. I used to race motocross in desert when I was young, but eh, I'm good for now. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely fall off like I would. Yeah. Um, no, I asked Richard, who is Marianne's, my partner's son, uh, have you got a, I want a photograph of the sunrise or sunset in South Africa. And he came up with that photograph, which mm. he'd taken several years before. It's a very beautiful photograph. The, the bike is almost in the water. And I think it's very evocative. And it's, it's are we looking forward or are we looking back? Is, is, this, mm. is, the, is the rider riding into the sunset or is he riding into the sunrise? Right. You don't, you can't really tell. So maybe, well, I haven't finished the recording yet. I've said that I've got to make my last appearance on stage uh, in soon. That doesn't mean so I'm not, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to stop recording. Certainly not. I shall carry on recording. So um, I, I may do bits on the computer, but I found a little studio where I recorded the vocals when I got back from South Africa. I did some of the vocals in South Africa, but to finish it off, there's a little studio just. 20 minutes away from my home here and I, it's totally secluded. I can go in there. I can be separated from the musicians in one little cubicle and the musicians could be in another part. So in terms of mixing with people, I can be totally separated and that's how I, I can work in the future. So it, it, this is a, both a looking forward and a looking back album. How is the music varying if at all from the last album especially being that that was done in lockdown and the process was completely alien to you compared to what you had ever done before uh it, well i i started to write the songs i suppose about the turn of the year the beginning of the year uh, i got i bought a new guitar i went to slovakia to buy it and it's the most magnificent instrument it's very very powerful beautiful sounding thing but I put the guitar in very in different tunings all the time. I don't use the standard tuning at all. Hmm. Hardly ever. Uh, in fact, on this album, there's just one song that's uh, Stack Jaw Alice's in normal tuning. Other than that, everything else is in a different tuning. Interesting. So I'll, I'll put the drop D down, but I'll tune the guitar to all E's and B's so that there's an open E chord just ringing through. Uh, so all of that gives the, the Straws music a distinctive flavour. Yeah. I know that other people use different tunings, but I don't think they use them quite to the extent that I do. And sometimes not intentionally. <laughs> no, but I, I've been doing it ever since I started playing the banjo. Ah. Oh. And the, that goes back over 50 years. And the reason for that is that I used to listen to old Appalachian music. And I found out that when you listen to that, that the banjo players tune the second string up half a tone to a C. And that's what gives the, no, the modal drone of all the, of a lot of those old Appalachian tunes. Interesting. I, I, I can't remember the song now, but anyway. Um, so I thought, that's interesting the way they do that. But I wonder what that would sound like on guitar. So I picked my guitar up, tuned the second string to C, 
And I thought, um, yeah, okay. And so I've got the top four strings, which are the same as a banjo. What do I do with the fifth and sixth strings? So I left the fifth string as it was, but I tuned the bass string down to D as well. I tuned the top string down to D. So I then had the top four strings of a banjo in modal tuning, the fifth string in an open A, and the bass string in D. And mm. so I've got what uh, I call dag-gad reversed. Dag-gad, you tune the second string down half a tone. I don't. I turn the second string up. And that is what gave the flavour of the opening track on the album, uh, Ready, Are, Are We Ready? Uh, and that is the modal sound of that particular track. And also, very interesting. Wow. what makes that track very different as well is that it's in 7-8 time. It's not in straight 4-4. Four, four. So you're counting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Oh, wow. So it alternates. Yeah. Yes. And so what is coming in is you're, you're coming in much earlier with the chorus. And so it, it adds an impetus to the, to the, to the lyrics. And, and if you'd done that in straight four, it would have become dull. Mm. Very but interesting. However, I love that concept. We, we didn't mess about with it and then put the instrumental sections in 4-4 four, four, in, in, in four, four, and then went back to the 7-8. So that track is in part 7-8 in parts 4-4. Four, four. Very interesting. I'm going to read a couple questions that came in from John Costello. John, thank you so much for tuning in and sending us a couple questions. He says, any chance, uh, David, that you and Rick... Uh, might do one more album together. He says Minnesota wants to know. <laughs> and he also asks any chance that the Straubs could do a tour with Annie Haslin guesting on vocals to do the Sandy Denny era Straubs material. For those who don't know, Sandy Denny, who was with Fairport Convention, also is the only guest voice that ever appeared on a Led Zeppelin album. She's the other voice on Battle Forevermore. Uh, also, well, Sandy Denny was our first and only girl singer. Mm -hmm. We talked about uh, the 50th anniversary. Annie Haslam did sing with us, uh, and we recreated those songs with Annie Haslam taking Sandy Denny's role. Oh, wow. And that is on the 50th anniversary concert. Nice. So that is waiting to come out. That's three years ago now. So we'll have to see. We'll, you, you, woken me up about that I've, when i've got this property thing out of the way this festival uh i'll start working with blue and Moose to get back to restoring that product uh but so that that is a, a possibility you never know with rick and myself um i haven't spoken to him face to face for a couple of years now but if i phone him up and say uh i do you fancy doing a track on an album, he will always do it. There's no argument about, no problems with that whatsoever. We're still the best of friends, and I can only hope that we may do. I've said, I'm not giving, I'm giving up stage performance because that's some that's a medical condition which is inhibiting that. Yeah. But recording, I can carry on and do as much as I want. And therefore, that's the great. idea of doing an album with Rick, I should, I should, maybe I should give him a call. That's great. Thank you again so much. And John says, I need to hear that concert. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I'm really curious. I would love to hear Annie with you guys. Yeah. We've yeah. had her on as well. She was great. Oh, yeah. she's lovely. If, yeah. if you look on uh, my Facebook page or, or Straw's Facebook page, 
you'll find a photograph of Annie and I together. It was only just posted about a week or so ago. Oh, nice. We'll check that, that out. We, that was when we were rehearsing for the 50th. It was at her house. Great. Steve? Yeah. Um, on the magic of it all, one of the... So it's a great album overall. Like I, I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, on the song, Everybody Means Something to Someone, the lyrics really resonated with me. Um, when you when you say think of all the friends you knew way back when i bet you've lost touch with nine out of ten just take a moment to send them a note it's not what you say it's the fact that you wrote and i've made lots of friends through different schools i've gone to in the past and even in this digital age it's easy to lose touch with people so sometimes one has to send something to maintain that connection, even if it's just a meme, you know, just a funny picture. So I, I really resonated with the lyrics on that song. Uh, it was written, I live just five minutes from the beach and I walked past this old castle that Henry VIII built down to the beach, into the car park. And in the car park leading down to the beach, there's a little row of fishermen's cottages. And outside one of them, there's a, a piece of driftwood that's been carved into a, the shape of a fish. And it was part of an old art exhibition from three or four years ago. And there's a tiny little plaque, no bigger than the CD here, like a little plaque like that. And I had to peer down to read it. And it said, everything means somebody to somewhere sometime. And I thought, mm. that's a nice sort of phrase. And I remembered it and came back with it. And I thought, Ah, that's a, there's an idea for a song there. I picked my guitar up, it was in an open E tuning, and I, I started to play it, and out came the sound of the, the waves of the sea, going from a D chord up to an E chord. Uh, and But I also began to think about the fact that that sea out there, it's washed away half of the castle, it, was very, it shows you the power of the waves. Mm -hmm. But also, there are many shipwrecks out, out there. Uh, it's a, a notorious area for shipwrecks. And so I thought about, oh, it began to come to me, the idea that there was a, somebody was waiting, the royalty had been shipwrecked out there, and they were waving their caps as they passed away. And it was very, not romantic, but very evocative. And so, but then I began to think, you know, this digital age of online, People have forgotten to pick up the phone. I don't phone anybody nowadays. I email them or, you know, send them a message. And it's, we've lost contact with people. We, we've lost, and I think we've lost a lot of, I think we've lost an awful lot by not writing letters. I don't hardly ever write a letter nowadays. Uh, I delivered one to my doctor's practice today, but that's a different thing. But you don't send a letter anymore. And my sister said to me, David, you're, the, the, the words of that song, it made, made me want to write you a letter. And, it, I'm, and she, she said, I'm going to send you more notes in the future. And so she has been. And so I do hope that that song will make people pick up the phone, maybe drop me a note, and I'll do the same back. That's um, great. And it, yeah, I, I just hope that uh, I find it very evocative and when I listen to it, especially with those a cappella vocals at the end, you listen to it three times, and I'm just spellbound 
by myself and it it's <laughs> me singing away droning away but i'm i'm spellbound by just listening to it and it, it when the whole song comes on it, get, I, it gets to the end i go phew did i do that you know it's very satisfying oh that's great that's great I, i'm going to read the track listing to everybody um ready are we ready in parentheses then we've got the magic of it all all along the bay Everybody means something to someone. Our world. Then number six, the time has come. And for in parentheses for giving back. Slack Jaw Alice. I love that title. Paris Nights. Wiser Now. The Lady of the Night. And Christmas Ghosts. Where does side one end and side two begin, David, on the vinyl version? If you don't mind giving it away. Oh, of course. Side one ends with everybody means something to someone. And side two ends with wiser now. Very cool. So that's why I say that the wiser now ends with a melancholy sound, yeah. a melancholy tone. Whereas uh, when you get the, the CD version, uh, you'll, you'll hear that the, it ends with an up, on an upbeat. And so yeah. it's got a totally different flavor. But that's how it's split. And uh, it, it took... Two whole days with a spreadsheet, with and I digitise the the timings, so three minutes thirty seconds becomes three point five zero minutes. So everything is digitised, and that way, it's, it, when you swap the track over from one side to the other side, uh, it's adding up and re-adding up the sides as you go along. Yeah, and you balance it, and then you think, oh, that's a minute out. That's if I pick that track out of there and put that there, yes, but that the key doesn't work with that because that's two keys, two songs in the key of D together. Move that one up there. So it's it, all of that is going on. But it took two whole days of working just to get the right, running order right. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Back in the day when you first formed the Strobs and you recorded your first couple albums, who were your influences growing up as a musician and at that point where you knew you could now go and record your own stuff? Who were your influences? Then I have a follow-up question to that. Well, the, the first influence would have to be rambling Jack Elliott, believe it or not. Uh, he came to play in the UK in Earl's Court. And as a schoolboy, I went up there and sat at his feet and sort of mesmerised by his flat picking and his uh, guitar with a triangular sound hole. I've got exactly the same guitar, not not that, well, triangular sound hole, Gretsch, over there behind me. Yeah. Uh, because I'll, I'll go and get it if you like and show you. <laughs> but it's, uh, but it's uh, I was influenced by him. Now, that's an interesting thing, is that I didn't, uh, the song, um, wiser now uh, all, all of these songs tell stories i, I don't just write uh, lyrics i love you babe uh, i've loved you all my life i, I don't do that yeah uh, i'm i'm commentating on what's happening in my life and i'm commentating on society as it's evolving around me so there's the politic political side of uh, ready which is like i'm was an old testament prophet saying it's the end of the world with with climate change. And there you get then to uh, the time has come for, for giving back. 
the political differences and arguments are horrendous at the moment and it's a politicians are in it for themselves and not for the for the people they should be representing and unfortunately that that's my view on it and so i'll make it clear on the record um, nice. so um i've lost track of where i was now oh my influences yes yeah. so from that i went on to listening to uh, a, a, a banjo, Earl Scruggs and uh, Lester Flat on a Newport Folk Festival album. And I thought, I want to play the banjo. So I bought a five-string banjo. I had no idea what I was doing with it. And I listened to that and I thought, well, how the hell can I... How does he do that? And I found out that my record player at the time had a half-speed, 33 and a third. It went down ah. So I slowed the record down and I worked out what finger patterns Earl Scruggs was using. And so I learned to play bluegrass banjo by listening to Earl Scruggs at half speed. Nice. That's not an easy instrument to pick up either when you <laughs> haven't played guitar first, right? Yeah, but I, but I just did it. That's uh, great. I worked out how to do it. In fact, I bumped in, it must be 20 years ago now, we were doing the Edmonton Folk Festival and Earl Scruggs was on the bill and I was absolutely mesmerised seeing my hero actually there playing the Foggy Mountain Breakdown. It was wonderful. I was in the audience. And after the show, I went out to get a bus or back to the hotel and there was Earl Scruggs standing on the waiting, waiting for his car to arrive to take him back to a hotel. And I went up to him and said, Mr Scruggs, I'm one of your greatest friends from England. I learned to play the banjo by listening to you at half speed. And he looked at me in absolute <laughs> astonishment and said, I'm going to Dublin next week. And then his car turned up and that was the end of our conversation, unfortunately. Oh, how funny. Have bands and other artists that um, your fans and other music fans might be familiar with have come to you and said how you and the Straub's music have influenced their music? Not, not that many bands, but the curious thing was people often say, you're, you're, you've turned up on a Def Leppard album. You're, you're on the first Def Leppard album. I said, yes. But they said, how's that come about? It came about because the band actually split apart in completely in 1980. And I went out and thought, well, I'm... I'd go around and play some folk clubs for a change. So I, I went round and went to Sheffield and played. And Joe Elliott and the guitar player used to come and literally sat, sat at our feet. I was playing with a guitar player called Brian Willoughby. And we, they used to come and sit at our feet. And Joe was very proud when we went back to Sheffield and gave me the very first 45 that they made. Oh, with wow. And I've, I've still got it somewhere, and I can't find the blinking thing. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, the, our producer at the time was Tom Allen, and when Def Leppard signed up, they chose Tom Allen as their producer. I went into the studio to visit Tom just to say hello one day, and they, was, they were putting down, and the walls came tumbling down. Oh, wow. And, and Joe was struggling with the, the poem he'd, he'd written at the beginning and said, Hey, Dave, you, you blinking read it. So I went and read it, and the walls came tumbling down. And so I ended up on the opening track of the first Def Leppard album. Wow, that's awesome. I hear 
your influence, and I know that comparisons are, you know, subjective, everything in art is, but I hear your influence very much on early Crosby, Stills, Nash type music and, and that band specifically. I definitely hear that, that kind of folk influence on them. Um, have you ever heard that before? Has anyone ever said that or have you ever made that observation? Yeah. People have said that before, that uh, we influenced them to an extent. People have said that the entire Styx catalogue uh, was based on Straub's. Um, oh, wow. Oh, wow. That familiar with Styx, but uh, they, I know that they listened to us. Nice. Uh, but don't forget that when we went over to play in, in America, our first shows were we were booked for a week at the Whiskey A Go Go. Ah. With Michael Murphy supporting us, the, the Texan singer. Yeah. And uh, we were staying in the same hotel, the Continental Hyatt House, and on the top floor, Led Zeppelin was staying there. Now, it so happened that our managers were, were the agents for John Bonham and Robert Plant in the Band of Joy before oh. Led Zeppelin. Yeah. So we went up to, to say hello to them and met them up, met up with them. And it turned out that John Bonham's favourite song was one of my songs, Martin Luther King's Dream. Oh, wow. Uh, they used to come down. When they used to fly out to wherever they went to, from Los Angeles out to Dallas or somewhere like that to do a show, or not maybe not that far, and then come back, we were doing shows about 11, 12 o'clock at night, or 11 o'clock at night was our second show, and the whole of Dead Zeppelin would come and see us play. Oh, how fantastic. Uh, the audience were absolutely mesmerized by the fact that Zeppelin were there. That's um, really neat. And, and so we got to know them. And so but it was lovely. And John Bonham was such a nice man. Uh, we got on very, very well. Nice. My biggest influence, by the way, my first and biggest influence. Yeah. They were my first concert that I ever saw. Oh. And one of those life-changing moments, I thought I was going to be the next Jacques Cousteau, but I saw Led Zeppelin and I said, oh, that could be a job, like being a professional musician. And yeah, that well, that changed everything. <laughs> yeah. Steve yeah. has some comments to read, one that just came through and a couple from when we were promoting this episode. So Steve, why don't you go ahead and start with Joshua? Okay. Yeah, so Joshua VP says, any good memories about the recording of The Boy in the Sailor Suit album? Take care and looking forward to the documentary. So that's uh, your solo album from 2007, right? And Joshua's in Belgium, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Oh, oh really? Lovely. Uh, well, I, I decided I wanted to do a, a song about, I moved to Kent, down to the, the, the county of Kent and it was went to the Battle of Britain Museum because all around Kent was actually where, in the Second World War, was, was where the big battles were fought between the Britain and the Germans. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were Messerschmitts flying overhead, there were uh, dogfights in the air, and all around there were aerodromes and wheat fields, and wheat fields and aerodromes together side by side Wheatfields gently waving from a, an old wartime aerodrome is one line that comes back. And also I went into my, my local pub and there were all these evocative postcards, sepia printed postcards of the area. And so I decided to write an album essentially about where I was living in the county of Kent. And so that that is how the album came about. 
I didn't want to use a band on it. I used Chaz on it on bass, but I wanted to get away from that. I, I brought in a totally different band lineup. I brought in Miller Anderson on guitar, who had played with me on my very first solo album uh, two weeks last summer. Wonderful guitar player. And I brought in Chris Hunt on drums. And it was just an absolute joy to do. And I brought a fiddle player in, Ian Cutler, as well. And it was great fun. That was all put down live. But every album since then, really, essentially, has been done not live in the studio. That was the last live album before this this one here, the two weeks, uh, two weeks, I might talk about, the magic of it all. Uh, so the, 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 the live feel comes across in that album. Um, we did. We called ourselves the Blue Angel Orchestra. It was a nice name to use. We went out and did a couple of shows, and that was it. I'm afraid too expensive to do. Interesting. Thanks for the question, Joshua and Steve. You have a couple that came in before the show when we were advertising it, right? Yeah. So Paul Kevin Whiffen said, "I actually played one gig with Straubs in 1993, thanks to my friend Blue Weaver." Dave yeah. had been one of my main inspirations for choosing music as my career. Wow. That's, well, Paul did, and uh, he uh, organized a, a show. It was, in, it, it was in Essex, and we went along and played it. And <laughs> it was very funny, because Blue, Blue organized for a Mellotron to come along, but he, he needed two, two different versions of the Mellotron racks. You know they have racks of three different sounds. Right. Uh, one has strings, uh, brass and woodwind on it, or another one will have choir, etc. And he wanted to use two different sounds. And Paul Whiffin organised halfway through the show. We did half of it with one one rack with it, and Paul organised the, the rack to be changed for the second half. Of the oh show. wow, that's so got to be tricky. Oh, <laughs> mid-show. But Paul, Paul played lovely guitar, and we met up with him again in a, a, a music fest fair in Frankfurt, and it was lovely. And I keep seeing seeing him popping up on my Facebook page, and it's lovely when he does. And we must meet up again, Paul, and have that nice, quiet little drink together again. Yeah. Very nice. And Mike Tiano, friend of the show and past guest on the show, says, saw the Straubs twice in the 1970s on two consecutive tours, both times opening for King Crimson, supporting their first two albums with Wetton and Bruford. Uh, do you remember that? I, I remember it very, very well. I always thought that they were the best shows we ever did with any bands. Mm. Uh, when we first started touring, we were touring with Carlos Santana and Joe Walsh. Then we toured with Billy Preston, believe it or not. That oh, was a wow. Very, very strange lineup. Uh, but when we did with the shows with King Crimson, we there was a similarity in that uh, the, the bands were, they were more prog than we were, but we, we were determined to put on a show. And, and there, there was, we were as friendly as anything. You know, there was no rival, nastiness or rivalry. We were really good friends, but we were determined to go down as well as we could. So we put on one hell of a show to make it as hard as possible for them to follow, follow that. And we got <laughs> very well. Now, this is something I'll tell you, which is very hardly ever known, is that when we came back from those tours, Robert Fripp phoned me up and said, David, I'd like to go out and do a tour of folk clubs with you. 
I'd, I'd like to see how we, we, I think we could get on very well together, just the two of us. Oh, wow. So he said, come over to the house and we'll have a rehearsal. So I picked up my guitar, went over to his house. Um, we had a cup of tea first, and then he got his Spanish guitarist footstool out and put it and put his had his Spanish guitar in his hand. I said, "Okay, what should we do?" So I took my guitar in a tuning uh, and played Ways and Means, and thinking, "Well, I better do something to give him something hard to play that's a bit, you know, it's got a bit bit of complex complexity in it." At the end of it, he put his guitar down and said, "Do you know?" I think you're self-sufficient. You don't need me. Oh, <laughs> what a neat story! Wow, and and Steve, I, I, I was so I was so disappointed. Oh, that would have been fantastic! Wow, why don't you ring him up again? Well, maybe I, I he's was, gotten better. Well, yeah, he still plays quite well. But I'll probably be seeing him at that festival we're going to do uh, in three weeks' time. Yeah. Yeah, ring him up and ask if he's gotten a little bit more technically proficient since then, if he'd fancy <laughs> doing it after all. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> and Steve has, for our last question, Steve has a fun fact question for you. Yeah, and before I read it, just a reminder that the magic of it all, uh, the new Straubs album is in stock on cherryred.co.uk. Um, so this last question what is your favorite fruit and what is your favorite vegetable? Favorite fruit? Um, I absolutely adore cherries. Um, um, at this time of the year is when the cherries is in the cherry season. You drive around the country lanes and you'll see lots of stalls with baskets of cherries. Unfortunately, it's pouring with rain, so you wouldn't see them today. But it's, it's a lovely, lovely time of the year. My favorite vegetable, I have to say, is avocado pears. I mm. adore avocados. A healthy fat. I, I found out four years ago this month that I have diabetes, which came as a shock. And avocados are a great part of the diet if you're diabetic. And plus, you could do so much with them, guacamole and slice them. I know, they're just gorgeous. Yeah. So I have something for you to try then, David. Now, this sounds like total stoner food, but I promise I was as straight as could be the first time I tried this. I halved an avocado, took out the pit. So I had the two halves with the empty pit hole on each side, and I filled it with creamy peanut butter, and it was awesome. The The textures are almost the same, and somehow it, it went. I highly recommend two very healthy fats. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll give. I don't have peanut butter in stock, but I'll give it a go. Um, I usually do just oil, olive oil, and, and that, that does for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also like it with just a bit of. Um, I like spicy foods. So a bit of cayenne pepper sprinkled on it is good too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great, David Cousins of the Straubs. Thank you so much for joining us on Yes Shift with Steve and I and sharing legendary stories about your legendary music from your legendary band. Brand new album out, folks. As Steve said, it's available on Cherry Cherry Records, right, Steve? Cherry Red Records. Cherryred.co.uk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Steve's got it. And folks, you can follow Yes Shift on Facebook at facebook.com slash yes shift, youtube.com slash at yes shift, and on anchor.fm slash Yes, Shift, if you just want the audio version while you're walking the dog or on your treadmill or something. Uh, David, thanks again. Hang on the line after we say goodbye to the audience. And folks, thanks for following what we do.
It's been great fun doing it. I absolutely loved it, and I'll be only too happy to do it again. Thank you very much. Thank We'd you. love to have you. Thanks, everybody.